Let's go ahead and bow in prayer, and we'll go ahead and get started immediately. Our Father, it is going to be a glorious day when the trumpet will sound, when the voice of the archangel will be heard. In Christ Jesus, your Son will descend from heaven and catch up first those who are in the grave and then those of us who are alive and on the earth, and we will be with one another and be with you forever. Thank you for this guaranteed hope that you give us as believers. You have entrusted to us, as your Son ascended, a great commission, and we are seeking our Father to learn not just to make disciples by giving them the gospel, but also teaching them all that you have taught us to observe. And so as we consider this first act of obedience that you call your people to, to be baptized, uh, in this day of great confusion, in this day where Satan has muddled theology, we pray that there would be clarity of thought, that your word would speak authoritatively to our hearts tonight. So help me, give me the words to say, and as we study together, may this truth be embedded deep into our souls that we would be changed by it. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. If you are with us for the first time, we are in a series on basic discipleship. Uh, this is the third of 21 handouts you'll be getting over the course of the next year. Uh, this is a course that we've taught uh, to new Christians for three decades here at Community Bible Church, and it really began before that when I was in campus ministry, and so many students were coming to Christ every week. And after a while, I began to see just a common set of questions that people have concerning how to grow as a Christian, and that's really what we're aiming at. These are the nuts and bolts of the Christian faith. These are the things that you want your children your grandchildren, people that God would entrust you to teach. These are the core values, um, and so they're essential. So right now, we're dealing with the subject of baptism. Uh, if you were here last time, and by the way, if you're online, this handout gets a little bit longer every week, uh, so that if you're joining us for the first time, you'll have the previous notes. When we come to the final session on a particular topic, and some of them will run three, four, maybe even five weeks on occasion, you'll have the entire handout. We have seven objectives to understand the meaning of baptism, uh, to see its various usages in the New Testament, to look at scriptures that have erroneously been used to teach that baptism helps save or saves all by itself. We're going to distinguish between pedio and credo of baptism. Uh, we hope to discern from the Bible the timing and the mode of baptism as it is to be practiced, to answer some very commonly asked questions, and then there's always a verse of Scripture. Last week, we looked at Roman number one, what is the meaning of baptism and how does it relate to the Great Commission? And so point A, we discussed that the word baptizo, the Greek that just is literally transliterated each sound right into English. Uh, we saw that its principal meaning, its primary meaning was to immerse, to submerge. Just like words in English can have a first, second, and third meaning, uh, this word actually has a few various meanings in both the uh, New Testament and in the Greek Old Testament. It elucidates the meaning of certain Hebrew words, and we'll discuss that a little bit later. Baptism is important, two point B, because it's part of the Great Commission. So if we're not asking people after they've become a disciple to be baptized, we've cut the Great Commission short. I know I was in student ministry for years and working with uh, college students, and 
You know, we're told that we weren't supposed to take a position on baptism. Well, you have to take a position on baptism. You can't not take one. But um, I understand where they are coming from as an organization. But to be obedient to Christ, we invite new believers to be baptized. It is a local church ordinance, as we will see. Um, Roman numeral two, we began to ask and answer the question, does baptism have any part in salvation? And of course, each of these introductory paragraphs are kind of an overall summary of what you hope to accomplish with the person that you are teaching these truths to. So we note here, people have often been deceived into believing that they can rely on their good works for salvation. Some trust in their uh, morality, some depend upon confessions to priests, some in their church membership, and still others trust in their baptism to save them. However, the unanimous voice of all Scripture is that people are saved by simple faith in Christ as Lord and not by good works. So first, point A, where we uh, left off last time, does baptism, oh, we gotta, yeah, that's where we left off, does baptism, uh, baptism does not save or help save a person. So that's where we were last time. B, tonight, where we want to begin, is illustrations of people who are saved apart from baptism. So that's where we are tonight. We're going to begin by looking at some illustrations that clearly, definitively show that these individuals met Christ as Lord and Savior, and yet baptism in no way, shape, or form contributed to their conversion. All right? So let's look at the first one, the immoral woman of whom we were told her sins were many, was immediately forgiven by her faith in Christ's power and promise to forgive and save apart from her being baptized. Let's look at that, Luke chapter 7. We'll look at a few examples here in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 7. And let's pick it up um, in verse uh, 36. The summary verse that's listed here in your handout is verse 50, and he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So let's think about that contextually. Verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. So, by the way, just this statement alone tells you that not all the Pharisees were antagonistic towards Christ. Some were actually searching. And in the book of Acts, it records some of the Pharisees who are converted, not to mention, of course, the most famous, Nicodemus, during the public ministry of Christ, and then also, of course, Saul of Tarsus, who is a Pharisee of Pharisees, a leader of leaders, member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, he also was converted after the resurrection of Christ. So not all Pharisees were hateful towards Christ, but most, unfortunately, generally speaking, were not too favorable. Um, and so this Pharisee seems at least to want to take a closer look. Notice, and there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. By the way, some suppose that this is Mary Magdalene because of what follows immediately in the next chapter, but there's no evidence of that. Um, in fact, it appears that this was not Mary Magdalene. With that said, I think it might be helpful to sort out some of these anointings because sometimes they're conflated together. And so there are three distinct anointings in the New Testament when the Lord Jesus is anointed. And sometimes people mix the passages. Oh, yeah, this is Luke 7, and uh, this must be uh, Mary of Bethany. No, Mary of Bethany, that was a separate anointing. 
So when you look at it, remember Luke, how he began his gospel. He began with a specific note. He said, um, I've written down uh, what was handed down to us from the beginning. And he tells us that he investigated everything carefully. And he wrote it out for you, verse 3 of Luke 1, in consecutive order. So Luke is a premier historian. Uh, You will find at times in the Gospels that things are not always put in consecutive order because maybe the Gospel writer is developing a theme. But in Luke's Gospel, it's in consecutive order. And so this anointing, as you look at the chronology of the Gospel, takes place about two years, Luke 7, about two years before the crucifixion of Christ. Now, go to, hold your finger here. Go to John 12 for a second. There's a second anointing. I think this is a little sideline, but I think it will be helpful to you. Um, John chapter 12, verse 1, and we find this second anointing of Mary of Bethany. You remember Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and they have a meal together. And notice it says, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they, uh, this family, uh, made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. So anointing number two took place days uh, before Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. One took place about two years before. This second one just took place shortly before the triumphal entry. All right, there's a third anointing. Go to uh, Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 26. So you have to turn back just a little bit from where you are. Don't lose your place in Luke. We're not, we're not done there. Luke chapter 26. And by the way, the parallel passage would be Mark 14. So Mark 14 and Matthew 26 describe a third anointing distinctly different from this notorious sinner and Luke 7, different from Mary of Bethany, different from this anointing that took place. Um, in Matthew chapter 26, and you, you will notice um, verse 1, when Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. And if you looked in the parallel account in Mark chapter 14, he gives the exact same notation, two days before Passover. So John says Mary did hers six days before Passover. This event took place two days before Passover, and that both gospel writers underscore that time frame is very significant because it really isolates this particular event. And of course, it says, now when Jesus was in Bethany, so he's in the same town that he was in earlier. And if you read the last week of Christ's life, uh, he spent most of those days in Bethany. Um, So he's in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, not Simon the Pharisee in Luke 7 that we're studying, an anointing that was two years before, but Simon the leper. And a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head. The anointing in John 7, I mean Luke 7 and John 12, they anoint the feet of the Lord Jesus. This woman anoints his head. And of course, in verse 8, the disciples were indignant. 
in the account in John 12, Judas is indignant. But on this occasion, all the disciples are indignant. Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken in memory of her. And we're speaking of her tonight, aren't we? Because God forever recorded it in Scripture. So when you think of the anointings of Christ, there's the one in Luke 7, two years before. Then there's two more in the final week of Christ's life, separated by four days, the one in John 12 by Mary of Bethany, then this woman in Simon the leper's house, and then uh, and the anointings are different. So just, it's just a sideline. And there's actually a fourth anointing that was attempted, of course, that never happened. And that anointing was, of course, the morning of the resurrection. All right, go back to Luke 7, Luke chapter 7. So one of the Pharisees, verse 6, was requesting to dining with him. And verse 37 says, and there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. So she was a sinner in that we all are, but she's particularly a notorious sinner, a famous sinner. The most suppose, therefore, that she's a prostitute, and I think they're probably right. Verse 37 continues, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. You know, you buy perfume today, and sometimes they, they package it in a really fancy bottle, don't they? And the more expensive it is, the more expensive the container typically reflects. They make some perfumes that are in literal bottles that are made out of fancy crystal. Well, people weren't all that different in the first century. And so the way you packaged a high-dollar perfume was in an alabaster veil. It would have no handles. They were typically pointed. They had found some of these, and you'd break open in the top, and you'd use it. And standing, verse 38, behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head. Very different, by the way, from the one in Matthew and Mark's gospel, in kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. So she's absolutely overcome with emotion. By the way, there is nothing wrong with emotion. We love God with our whole heart, mind, and soul, and that can often engage our emotions. So tears are flowing from her eyes. She's crying. His feet is getting wet with her tears. She's attempting to dry the tears with her hair. So uh, there's an objection to what takes place. This Pharisee who had invited her, invited Jesus, questions his legitimacy as a religious leader. Look at verse 39. If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is and who is touching him, that she is a sinner. So Simon the Pharisee doubts that Jesus could really be a man of God and that he would allow this immoral woman to literally physically touch his feet. Of course, there's nothing improper. So Jesus is going to expose Simon's heart 
that he's the one with a, a real problem. And so there's a silence in the room. It's probably awkward. And Jesus breaks the silence. Verse 40, and Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. So he tells him kind of a parable of sorts. A money lender had two debtors. So he uses this parable, most of you have read it, to illustrate the degree of love as expressed by the realization of forgiveness. Now, this self-conceited Pharisee was a sinner too. We all are, and sometimes people have said to me in a few occasions over the years, I don't think I can love God the way this woman loved God because I was not saved from the same depths of sin, and that's just a gross misunderstanding of what God pictures in Scripture because God gives the anatomy of us all as sinners, and we have the capacity to do anything. We have the capacity to commit any kind of sin. Now, this woman played it out, and she realized how dirty and filthy that she felt. So he asked the question, which of them will love him more? And with the words, I suppose, it seems like he maybe hesitated for a second. Maybe he was aware, I, I think I'm getting into one of Jesus' traps here. I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he says, you've judged correctly. And so now he applies the parable to both Simon and the sinful woman. He says um, in verse 44, do you see this woman? Simon, the Pharisee, thought that Jesus was the one who could not see her. And Jesus says, don't you really see her? Do you see this woman? Do you see her love? Do you see her repentance? Do you see her devotion? Do you see her? And he didn't really see her. But Jesus saw her for what she was, a humble, broken sinner. And he saw her for what she had been. He said, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. And we've studied this a little bit. These were common courtesies a host would do. He'd wash the feet of the traveler or the guest coming in. You'd kiss the person similar to a handshake in our day, and then you'd kind of bless them. I've been in different homes where they've blessed me. I went into this one home, and they pulled out a brand new set of slippers. We want you to be comfortable in our home tonight, and they gave me brand new slippers, quite nice ones to, to, to walk around in. So this was just a common expression. You, 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 you put oil on the person's head. It just gave a real super fragrance. You didn't do any of the common courtesies and so he says, verse 47, for this reason I say to you, her sins which are many have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he was forgiven little, loves little. Now, she wasn't forgiven because of her great love. Her great love was evidence that she was forgiven. Don't get him backwards. Then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? Remember, the Pharisees on one occasion in Capernaum said, who can forgive sin but God alone? And they were right. No one can forgive sin but God alone. And so they're stepping back. Who is this man who even forgives sin? 
Of course, in Capernaum, Jesus said, so that you know that what I'm saying is not just a bunch of blather. This guy who is paralyzed, pick up your pallet and walk. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. She was forgiven, not on the basis of works, because she had none. And this Pharisee, you know, it's easy to look righteous in the presence of a woman like this. And that's why on another occasion, he said, it's not those who are well that need a physician, but those who are sick. She recognized she was sick and that she needed forgiveness. And even the person who hasn't soiled themselves in prostitution and all the other things that maybe sometimes, quote-unquote, notorious, famous sinners are known for, that's an expression of God's grace and God's goodness too, that he would ever keep someone from those sins. And so they do not, uh, they are not at some deficit where they cannot love Christ with the same passion. So he says, go in peace. So again, the, the, the point of it is that if baptism saves, and there are denominations that teach that, that salvation is impossible apart from baptism. Roman Catholics say baptism is the sacrament that washes away sin from the soul and instills salvation. Baltimore Catechism. Church of Christ, Disciples of Christ, the so-called Christian church. Again, there are churches that are called Disciples of Christ, some that are called the Church of Christ, some that are called such and such Christian church that don't teach this, all right? So be careful. But typically when you see Church of Christ, Christian church, you know, whatever it is, Savannah Christian, which changed its name many times, and you go to their doctrinal statement, you discover that they teach baptism is necessary to save and it's not. Look at another example. Let's fast forward to Luke chapter 18, Luke 18, Luke 18. Most of you know this situation that Jesus unfolds for us. Uh, he told this parable, verse 9, to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Again, that tends to be what folks do especially religious folks, is that they compare themselves to other folks, and next to them they feel great. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, a separated one, which is what the word means, and the other a tax collector. And I think most of you know a tax collector or a publican, depending on your rendering of the English, were rip-off artists. They stole from people. They made their living not only by collecting the required tax, but above and beyond the required tax. Yet Jesus calls a guy named Matthew in Capernaum from his tax office to follow him because he, like the prostitute, so to speak, the notorious sinner, knew that he needed forgiveness and that he was a thief of sorts. So the Pharisee, verse 11, stood and was praying to himself. Do you know that when you pray, it's possible to pray to yourself? <laughs> Sometimes you can pray to others. Sometimes I've heard a prayer and I thought, is this a prayer or is this like a, a sermon? Is this a prayer or is this a commercial? You can pray to others. You can pray to yourself. That's really what he's doing is... His prayers never got 
much higher than the roof that was over his head because he really was not approaching God the way he needed to. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. So he praises himself when he compares himself to other people. Again, when you compare yourself to other people, you don't look nearly as bad. I fast twice a week. And so in the oral law that uh, was ultimately codified, they said that pious Jews would typically fast twice a week. They would fast um, based on the days that Moses went up to Mount Sinai to get the law. He went up on the fifth day of the week. He came down on the second day of the week. And so they fasted on those two typical days. And then he says, I pay tithes of all that I get. And of course, in Christ's uh, scathing sermon to the Pharisees and scribes in Matthew 22, he reminded them that they tithed right down to the spices in their garden. Now, of course, you know, tithing in ancient times was largely foodstuffs. It could be monetary, but it was often foodstuffs. I was just sharing recently with someone when, um, because one of our pastor friends in South Africa just recently went home to be with the Lord, and I stayed in his house and um, stayed in, on a dirt floor and a tin roof that leaked, and I got rained on in the morning, and of course, there was no indoor plumbing, and his wife graciously had gone to the well and fetched water and filled up a, a bucket like this for me to bathe in in the morning. And, and in that particular village, there would be this child that would come and eat the dog food because he had nothing else to eat. And of course, I asked the pastor, I said, well, obviously, people are eating. Where do they get their food? He said, well, they grow it. I said, well, do they tithe it? He said, well, not really. I said, well, that's the starting place. If someone gets 10 ears of corn, they should bring one ear to the church. And I said, one, it gives them an opportunity to give, to see God's blessing on their life. But number two, it gives them an opportunity to minister to people in the community. So these Pharisees tithed right down to the spices in their garden. They were very particular. They didn't want to miss anything. And that was not a bad thing, unless you're trying to justify yourself before God by those things. By contrast, verse 13, the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He beats his breast, and it's, a, it's in a tense... It's not just one smote, so to speak. Over and over and over and over and over again, he's beating his breast. Because as Josephus indicates, along with Eusebius, that's what pious Jews did when they were acknowledging that their hearts were sinful. You know, we often use the slogan, the heart of the problem is a problem of the human heart. And that's really what this man is confessing. And Jesus, uh, and he says, God, be merciful. You see that word merciful? We studied in our first handout the word holasterion. It's translated propitiate. We spoke of the doctrine of propitiation, an important doctrine that every Christian needs to know, that God's anger has been satisfied in a substitute, that he gives us of himself in Christ to save us from himself. A substitute bears the wrath of God. So God, be propitiated with me. It's the word that's used here. I tell you, Jesus said, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. 
For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so, again, this is a changed man, and the purpose in looking at it is he's not baptized. Uh, Look at another one, and I'll give you the explanation that people will give to these in a moment. Go to Luke chapter 23, Luke 23, and let's uh, look at a familiar passage. I preached on this on Easter, and as it turns out, a, a woman in Costa Rica was listening, and she came to Christ. And I had a Skype appointment with her and her husband last week, and they're so excited uh, to have found Christ as their Savior. One of the criminals, verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself in us. So here's this man who... uh, As you know from Matthew's account, it was something that both of them were doing, but they were there from the ninth hour, from 9 a.m. until 3 p.m. So they were there a total of six hours, and of course, one had a change of heart. And it says, uh, verse 40, but the other answered and rebuking him said, do you not even fear God since you are under this same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly. For we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said, truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, some of our friends in the Church of Christ would say, well, this man lived in a different dispensation. He lived on the other side of the cross. He lived at a time before Jesus died, and therefore baptism was really not in place. And that's the thrust of their argument. Now, this man obviously, whatever he did, we know some of the sins that I highlighted in the sermon from Easter, but we know that he did nothing to warrant, obviously, eternal life. He came simply in faith, recognizing that the sign above the cross, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. He was able to put it together. He was able to put it together. Maybe he went to the temple or the local synagogue growing up and realized that the one he had heard preached about, Messiah who was coming, was actually dying next to him. The one he had cursed and blasphemed and made fun of was his Savior. And he cried out in simple faith. And of course, the fact that he uh, lived in this dispensation is bore out by what follows. Notice verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole earth until the ninth hour. So the crucifixion started at 9 a.m., At midday, it became like midnight for three hours long until 3 p.m., the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus crying out with a loud voice saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the woman who accompanied him from Galilee were standing 
at a distance seeing these things. So don't miss the order here. Years ago, my wife and I were newly married. We were living in an apartment complex, and in that complex was a Church of Christ pastor. And the thrust of his argument was that the thief on the cross is not a good example that evangelicals use all the time because he lived in a different dispensation. Actually, he lived in this dispensation. Why? Because who died first? Jesus. Fast forward for a second. Sooner or later, you're going to run into someone from the Church of Christ, and this will be a helpful argument to you in reference to baptism. Go to John's gospel, next gospel over. Go to John chapter, uh, I think it's 19. Look at verse 31. By the way, the way you can back up in your mind the various gospels, like Matthew 28, that's the last chapter, right? That's the resurrection chapter. Chapter before that, that's the crucifixion chapter. Chapter before that, that's the rest chapter. You go to Luke, Mark's gospel, Mark 16, the resurrection chapter. Back up a chapter, 15, crucifixion chapter, 14, the arrest chapter. Same in Luke. The only exception to that would be John in that he has a postscript show to speak where they meet at that beach for a barbecue of fish and so forth. So you have that postscript at chapter 20, the resurrection chapter, 19, the crucifixion chapter, 18, the rest chapter, and so on. So that, that's just if you're trying to think your way around the Bible and you're trying to find something that might be helpful. Look at 19 in verse uh, 31. We're told the Jews, therefore, because it was the day of preparation. So John underscores this is the day of preparation. That's the day before the Sabbath. Saturday is the Sabbath, right? And so this was the day of preparation. The Jews, therefore, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. For that Sabbath was a high day. This was not just any Sabbath. This was a high Sabbath. Why? Because Passover. And so they asked Pilate for the body. Now, why did they do this? Um, you can go back and you can read Deuteronomy chapter 21. I have it written out here in the margin, Deuteronomy 21, 22. And uh, there the Scripture says that if someone is worthy of death and he's sentenced to hang on a tree, what we'd say hang on a cross, his corpse was not to hang all night long, but it was to be removed lest the land be defiled. And so numerous historians highlight that from the first century, that this was important to the Jews. And because the Romans, while they were in control, they neither wanted a revolt, especially during Passover, because now all of a sudden you have not, you know, 100,000 people in Jerusalem, but you have somewhere between one and two million people, depending on the year. So they want to maintain peace. So they asked Pilate, verse 31, uh, for the body. And so, again, the Jews, therefore, because it was the day of preparation so that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So I think most of you understand something about crucifixion. I've preached on it on one time or another. But when you break the legs of a crucified victim... They had no ability to hold themselves up to be able to get air as they hung in that V position. 
and it basically brought about suffocation very quickly. And so uh, the soldiers, verse 32, therefore came and broke the legs of the first man and the other man who was crucified. So Jesus is on the middle cross, so they start on the outside, one on the left, one on the right. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. They didn't break his legs. Why? There was no need to. He was already dead. Of course, John is going to underscore in verse 24 that one of the soldiers, just to be absolutely sure, you heard about the woman just this past week that declared dead, and she was in the funeral home. This you can read online. just happened a couple days ago when she woke up in the funeral. She started breathing in the funeral home and the, uh, while they had her on the table, and uh, they rushed her to the hospital. I don't know how she's doing. but So, you know, they wanted to make sure, is he really, really dead? So they took the spear and thrust it in his side, and blood and water, a sure sign of death, came out. And of course, Mark tells us Pilate was kind of surprised that he was already dead. And he questioned the centurion in reference to that. Um, but there was no need to break the legs. Why? Because he was already dead. Now remember, if they had broken the legs of Christ, you could take your Bible and you could throw it away and say it's not true that Jesus cannot be the Messiah. Remember, there are two kinds of prophecy in the Scripture. There's what we call verbal predictive prophecy, like Messiah will be born in Bethlehem of Judea. That's a specific prophecy. And then there's what we call typical predictive prophecy, where by picture, by illustration, by type, you have a picture of what the Messiah is going to do and how he's going to do it. So it's not by accident that there's one ark, that there's three floors. Uh, symbolizing the triunity of God, one door of entrance because there's one way of salvation and the ark because Peter tells us it's a type of Christ. And so there's predictive prophecy and some of those prophecies are seen in the feasts of Israel. There are seven feasts. There are four in the spring and there are three in the fall. The four in the spring have already been fulfilled in the first coming of the Messiah. The three that will happen yet in the fall will all happen and be fulfilled around the events of the second coming of Christ. And I think most of you know something about Passover. Uh, they are under the bondage of Egypt, but God promised to Abraham that the bondage would only last 400 years. After 400 years, he would bring them out with a mighty hand, but he was waiting to the iniquity of the Assyrians be made full, and then they were going to leave and ultimately go into the land of Canaan or what we call the promised land. And the final plague was darkness that would come, and any person who is a firstborn was smote with death unless they had blood on the doorpost and the lentil. And when they the angel, and I think you can argue for an angel based on some other text, saw that he passed over and that person was spared. And so we use that imagery in the New Testament. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us, Paul will write, that we have been redeemed not with silver and gold, but like with a lamb, as Peter will write. But God had written in Numbers chapter 9 when they celebrated the Passover, when they ate it, not a bone was to be broken. So not only did it have to be an unblemished lamb, 
that pictured the magnificence and the sinlessness of Christ. It had to be a lamb when they ate it. They could not break a single bone. Because again, it's picturing the Messiah in that great Psalm, Psalm 34, he'll watch over me and not a bone will be broken. It's a messianic psalm. Most of you have read that. Now, the point of the rabbit trail is this. (laughs) That thief died on the other side of the cross. He died before Jesus, or Jesus died before he did. He lived on this side of the cross. And so to say, well, it's a moot argument to say that baptism has nothing to, you know, to do with this man because he lived in another dispensation was, is really erroneous. But these are the arguments they make. And if you're dealing with someone who are in these denominations, you say, well, they're good people, you know, Church of Christ, Disciples of Christ, Christian Church denomination, they're good people. And there are people in these churches who are definitely born again. Um, but I remember being at a large mega church in Savannah and talking to some of the elders, and man, they were like absolutely hardcore that baptism was necessary to salvation. And that's no different than the Galatian era. The Galatian era didn't deny that Jesus died, was buried, and was raised. They affirmed that. They just said it wasn't sufficient that before you could be saved as a Gentile, you had to become a Jew, you had to be circumcised, you had to go through the vestibule of Judaism before you could be saved. And Paul said, that's a different gospel. And that invalidates the gospel of grace. It means that Christ died for no purpose. And it's a different gospel that will damn someone to hell. So this is no small matter when you're dealing with people who think that baptism saves or helps saves, it's a critical matter in reference to salvation. Look at the next example here in your handout. The Philippian jailer, he was told to simply believe in the Lord Jesus and he would be saved. And then after he received Jesus, his baptism followed his salvation, but it did not save him. So again, the order is significant. And that's the order that Christ says, make disciples. And this is why, dear Christian people who like to take that term, make disciples, mean do discipleship, they're abusing the Scripture. They say, well, Jesus is talking about doing discipleship. No, He's not. He's talking about making converts. That's the first thing. Go, therefore, literally, it's a participle, as you go. See, we see it as, well, go to India, go to Pakistan, go to this country and make disciples. No, he's talking about as you're moving, as you go, as you go where? As you go everywhere you go, make converts. And again, the commission is brought into all nations. Baptizing them, the order is significant. They become a disciple. And we spoke about different usages of the word disciple earlier in this course. It's not always used of a true believer. There are curious disciples who are unconverted. They're committed. They're contributing. They're multiplying disciples. As you go, make converts, baptizing them, teaching them. So the order is significant. And that's what you're seeing throughout the Acts, as we're going to see many times over. Okay, point C. Uh, baptism is separated from the plan of salvation. Baptism is separated from the plan of salvation. We're told in the Bible that the gospel is the power of God to save an individual. Most of you have Romans 1.16. I told my wife, if I precede you in death and we don't go up in the rapture, I want Romans 1.16 somehow embossed in my coffin. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
So whatever the gospel is, it's the power of God to save. We don't have to wonder. Of course, the gospel is Jesus and all that he accomplished. So point two, the Bible defines the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 3. Most of you, we should turn there, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3. 1 Corinthians 15, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. And by the way, it's articular. It's not I made known to you gospel. And there is a non-technical use of the word euangelion, gospel, in the New Testament, where it just means good news. So sometimes there's a broad use of the term gospel. But when it's accompanied by the article, it's very important. Um, I know when you go to places where, um, like uh, Russia or Moldavia or Ukraine, and um, those countries don't have the article in their language, and so you have to kind of explain the usage of the article to make the point. But the article is really important in the Greek New Testament. When God uses the article, it's what we call, remember, as third graders, our teacher used to say, it's the pointing word. It points at something. So this is not a broad use of the term good news, but it's the good news, the gospel. I made known to you the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. If indeed you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And Paul questioned the belief of some of the Corinthians. He will say to them, Test yourself to see if you be of the faith. Because some of them had a lifestyle that seemingly denied that they had genuinely believed. Last week I had two people, two adults, one asking about his daughter who was living with a man, another asking about his daughter who's a lesbian. And, you know, are they, could they be saved? They made this profession of faith when they were young. I said, well, look, I'm not their judge, but I can tell you what God says. And God says, do not be deceived that no immoral person has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. We're not talking about perfection. We're talking about lifestyle here. And if someone has a lifestyle, yeah, they're married to this woman. Or yeah, she's married to a woman. Yeah, this person over here, you know, her boyfriend and her have been living together for years. I said, you will do her an injustice to make her think that she's a Christian. Remember, he has already said in 1 Corinthians 6, do not be deceived, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor thieves, and so on, will inherit the kingdom of God. Then he says, and such were some of you. Where Paul says, for this you know with certainty... So this is not vague, this is not fuzzy. This you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. God likens some of these sins to idolatry. And that's what people do. They, they worship sex. And these college campuses are coming unglued across America because all these kids are driven by sexual... We're going to have our parties... We're not going to have our mask on because we want it off so we can seduce one another. And they live for sex, illicit sex. No immoral or impure person has an inheritance. Let no one deceive you with empty words. 
For because of these things, what things? People who are immoral and impure, because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. So again, when Paul makes this statement here, he's not talking about losing salvation. But remember, he wasn't absolutely convinced that everyone in the Corinthian church had met the Savior. Peter will say, make sure your election and calling is genuine. Make sure it's real. For I delivered to you as of first importance. Remember, he just said, I made known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you. Then he said, here's what it is. I delivered to you as of first importance what I received. That Christ died, he was buried, he was raised, period. Now, hold that thought. Remember, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to save. Do I know what the gospel is? Yes. I made it known to you as of first importance. So Paul's biggest priority when he went to a new town was not to preach on this or that, but to give people the gospel. That's where you always start. You start with the gospel because you can't really move someone along spiritually until they're converted and regenerated. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And look, if you will, um, again, it's a, it's a carnal church. By carnal, that is, they hadn't grown much. A lot of them just kind of stayed baby Christians and floundered. And that's why this course is so important. Now, if someone chooses to flounder, well, maybe they're not saved. Or maybe their, their heart has been captured by anything. But if someone comes to this church, they don't have an excuse to flounder. Because every week when someone meets the Savior, we invite them the next Sunday to come to the discovery class. Obviously, we don't have it right now, so we're doing it on Wednesday nights. But one aspect of, of carnality was they had these factions within the fellowship. For I am informed, verse 11, concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, they are good people, <laughs> that there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul. I like Paul, you know, man. He, he was a Pharisee. He's my man. I'm of Apollos. Apollos was an incredible preacher. Like, man, that guy could, quote, unquote, preach. Paul, they said, he was unimpressive to listen to. Others said, I'm of Cephas. Man, I hang with one of the originals. Peter's my man. Oh, I'm of the Christ party. I don't recognize these other people. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now I, did not baptize. now, I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. Paul said, you know, I baptized so many people. And he's just writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit what he knows that I, I don't remember if I baptized other people. A lady came up to me once. She said, you baptized me 25 years ago. I said, I did. I said, I'm sorry, I didn't remember. So I feel like I'm in good company. Paul didn't remember. So verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So what does that do for you? It's a definitive 
tax. Some said it's a proof tax. Look, there's nothing wrong with a, a proof tax as long as it's in the context. Usually when we use the term proof tax, we're de- describing some verse that someone takes either out of the immediate context or out of the broader context of, uh, of the Bible itself. But God only has to say something once for it to be true. And we could cite many examples. He only cites bestiality once. Never in the New Testament. I can tell you it's still a sin. There's a lot of things, you know, you don't hear in the New Testament that you shouldn't marry your sister. But God articulated it very clearly and spent quite an extensive number of verses on who you could marry and couldn't marry in terms of family relations. He only has to say it once for it to be true. But here he says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. In other words, I'm not a showman. The power is not in the show, the lights, the fog, the rock music, the drama, all the nonsense we bought into in evangelicalism. The power is in the preached word. That's what changes lives. And if we ever forget that, then we will lose perspective in what God has called us to do. But clearly, notice, he separates the gospel from the plan of salvation. He makes it plain that the two are not equal. So again, point two in your outline here, the Bible defines the gospel as the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. When writing the Corinthians, the apostle Paul distinctly separated the gospel from water baptism when he said that Jesus did not send him to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So if baptism were necessary to salvation, then the apostle Paul would not have made such a statement separating the two. So there it is, definitive proof. Baptism is not a part of the gospel. He did not send me to baptize. He sent me to preach the gospel. He defines the gospel as the death, burial, and resurrection. So to add anything to the gospel is to say that Jesus' death on the cross was not sufficient to purchase our salvation. To teach that we must be baptized in order to be saved is to invalidate the sufficiency of the saving power of Christ's death and resurrection. So some people got mad at me because on the radio seven or eight years ago, I made a statement about that church in Savannah. I said, Rick, pull it up. Pull up their doctrinal statement. We read it right over the air. Now you tell me if that's true. It said you could not be saved unless you were baptized. That baptism was a step to conversion. Not an evidence, but a step. That's no small thing. That's damnable error that will lead people into a self-righteous spirit. And that's the theme of Galatians. Understand that the Galatian church understood the gospel. But because they had let these false teachers called Judaizers into the church, what it was affecting was their sanctification. That's another argument. Any verse, but I quote here Galatians 2.21, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. He died needlessly. Any verses that are used to try to prove that baptism saves must be understood in the broader context of the Bible. Since the Bible never contradicts itself, the diligent student of Scripture will discover there is always a clear explanation for verses 
people apply to falsely teach that baptism saves. Uh, let's look at one more. I think we've got time, and then we'll go to prayer. Acts 2.38. It does not contradict Ephesians 2.8.9. Peter said to them, this is Pentecost, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So they needed to repent. Now, the word repent is a Greek verb, metanao, and there's a noun as well, metanoia. It just means either a change of mind or it's used actively as a verb. It means to change your mind. You say, is it important? Of course it's important. Jesus said, unless you repent, you perish. Well, if it's so important, then why didn't John use it once in his gospel, a gospel that is written to convert people? Because it's impossible to genuinely believe without repenting. Many other things the Savior did in the presence, our presence, but these have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah and believing you might find life in his name. That's the stated purpose. Yet he never once uses the word repent. Why? Because belief in and of itself encompasses the context of repentance. And repentance will mean different things to different groups of people that the Scripture is addressing. Who is he addressing in this context? Jews, who said Jesus is only a man. And so Peter in the sermon indicts him, you crucified your own Messiah, the Lord of glory. Of course, he makes it clear that it was according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God in Acts 4 that God used this, and he reminded them by quoting the prophet David himself. David was not only a king, but a prophet, to show that God had forewritten all of this in advance. But you said he was just a man. So you need to repent. You need to change your mind what you said about Jesus, that he's not just a man. He is the God-man. He is the Messiah. Now, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. Point one there. The term for the forgiveness of sins sometimes has been used erroneously to justify water baptism as a means to salvation. So when you go on a church website and you want to see, do they teach baptism saves? Typically, one of their, their headquarter verses is Acts 2.38, John 3.3, 3, Romans 6, you know, where they... Uh, misapply the Scripture. But this is one of their major verses. However, when one uses the word for in this passage, much like it is used every day in conversational English, we can easily understand and apply what Peter meant. For instance, when we say a man is arrested for stealing or that uh, we are grateful for a favor or someone is blamed for carelessness or commended for bravery, how are we using the word for in English? Certainly, we do not mean one is commended in order to be brave, but rather one is commended because he is brave. So even in English, it can carry that connotation. Even so, the word for does not mean in order to secure the forgiveness of sins, and it is not rendered that way in any translation of the Bible. By the way, I should say parenthetically, this is only an issue in the English text. In all the other languages of the world, I don't know another language that I've encountered, whether preaching in China or India or Russian or Ukrainian or French and German and other places I've preached where it's even an issue. It's not an issue. It's only an issue in English. 
but let's deal with it because English is like the international language. The Greek word eis, E-I-S, as it's transliterated, here translated for, is sometimes translated in the Bible against, among, at, upon, onto. For instance, in Luke eleven thirty-two, we are told that the people of Nineveh repented at or because of the preaching of Jonas. Same little particle, ace. The men of Nineveh, Jesus said, will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it. Why? Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Same word translated for there, at here. Likewise, we are to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, meaning not in order to be forgiven, but because we are forgiven. We are baptized as a public expression of our faith that we are unashamed of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And again, as we mentioned last time, what's underscored in this context, not a denial of the Trinitarian formula in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but in the name of Jesus, because he's the issue with this group of people. They said, Jesus, well, he's a nobody. He needs to be obliterated. Peter says he's Lord. And if you're going to be saved, you must identify with him. We could spend a lot more time on that verse and the ins and outs and the abuse by our Pentecostal friends. The gift of the Holy Spirit is not speaking in tongues. It's the Holy Spirit himself and so on. But I think you get the thrust of this. We'll pick it up here next time. Let's bow in prayer. And Pastor Ed and those that you've asked to pray, if you'll make your way to the front, and we will uh, join our hearts in prayer. And as you approach the microphone, if you would not be a foot away, but just an inch away, there's no virus on it, you don't have to worry, so that everybody can hear you, okay? Father, we thank you for the incredible grace that you've shown us in the Lord Jesus. We think of that woman who was so incredibly moved that you could forgive her as she wept, Lord Jesus, at your feet, she cried and anointed you, as did Mary of Bethany, as did the woman in the house of Simon the leper. May we acknowledge that we are wholly yours based only on what you have done, and that neither baptism nor any other thing that we can think of can never gain merit with you. May we be unashamed of the grace of God, for we know how humbling it is to come as broken, helpless, sick people in need of a Savior. May we, without compromise, share this grace with people even this week, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.